So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. I am so excited to have Neil join with us today. He brings just a massive wealth of knowledge. I had a little while ago a long discussion on markets, uh, what's going on in the vesting world and real estate, and um, I was pretty blown away at his knowledge and what he could bring to the table. So I am so excited to have him have him with us. So with that, bring him on. Thanks for having me on the podcast, AJ. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, uh, your time and I appreciate our conversations that we had a, a few weeks ago, you know, talking about what's going on. And we're, we're in such a transitional period, I feel, in the marketplace in general. And, uh, we, you know, I think that's most of the questions we get from our listeners is where to invest. Is it the right time to to invest. A lot of people are nervous because we've been in such a long um, cycle upwards. But uh, before we get into that, why don't, you, why don't you tell tell our listeners a little bit about you, your backstory, and uh, and what you do. Awesome. So um, I'm not real estate royalty. I haven't done a thousand loans. I haven't you know done a you know a um, hundred flips, anything like that. I'm a technologist, and I got into real estate in reverse. AJ. Most people will start with a single family rental. I was given the job by my CEO, a brilliant man that was running a technology company. I was his chief operations officer. He gave me the job of building a campus from scratch under his supervision in 2003. And I was terrified. And for the next nine or 10 months as we built that campus from scratch, I moaned and I bitched and I complained and I said, how could this possibly be my job? And in the next 17 years, I've never stopped thanking him because what you learn when you build a commercial building that's a huge project, it was 30,000 square feet, when you build it from scratch, the learning is incredible. It's like going to construction school. And then once I got the hang of it, once I really started to enjoy it, I built six different campuses, some of them smaller than, than that big one, over the next, I think, eight or nine years, and learned a great deal about real estate that way. And so that got my confidence level up. And so then I started like everybody else, you know, I should have gone directly in, into commercial because I had the confidence, but I didn't, I chickened out. I started doing single family, good timing, but in 2008 bought 10 single families. I'm a data scientist. So I, I constantly am looking at data and analyzing data. And I use data to find the city that had the, the largest decline from the 2005 peak to the 2000, 2008 or end of 2008 trough. And that city, surprise, surprise, was in California. So it was Madeira, California, 20 miles north of Fresno. Prices had fallen there the most. What does that mean? Well, in 2005, a whole bunch of farm workers with undocumented income, 20 miles from four bedroom, 2000 square foot, beautiful Kaufman and Broad homes. Kaufman and Broad made lots of money because they just sold them for $250,000 each. Their cost to construct was maybe 170, 180. Well, three years later, all entire portions of the city are empty because all those agricultural workers with undocumented income have left. Nobody's living in these properties. And now they're, they're available for $90,000. Brand new properties, brick facade is beautiful. I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. So I go there and I do the math and everybody is telling me that I am completely insane for going and buying these properties. It makes no sense to anybody. People are thinking I'm the biggest fool of all time, but there's one thing, one thing that didn't tell me that I was a fool and that was data. 
That was numbers. I looked at the math and I said, it costs $180,000 to build this property. I'm buying it for $90,000. And on day one, I can rent it for a thousand bucks a month. How can I possibly be making a mistake, right? Nobody would give me a straight answer except to say the market is crashing. And I was like, how far can it crash, right? So my family told me I was a total idiot and, and beat the crap out of me, but I decided to buy 10 of these homes all in the same locality. And then I hired a virtual assistant in the Philippines. And this virtual assistant, two of them actually, there was a virtual assistant and a data guy. And I told the data guy, I also have one home in Fresno. I want you to find a way to market this home in Fresno so much that I get 20 or 30 tenant leads a day. And then I told the Filipino girl that was picking up the phones from all those ads that the data guy was putting on, I want you to redirect all of these people that are looking at my Fresno homes. I want you to redirect them to the Madeira homes 20 miles away. Tell them the story. It's 500 bucks less. It's a 20 mile drive, but there's no traffic. And look at the beauty of these homes. Look at this website. Look at, look at how huge these homes are. So you're going to get 600 square feet more of space and you're going to spend 500 bucks less in a, and live in a brand new home. You want to do that? Just, you know, I, I can show it to you any day, anytime. Before I knew it, all of those homes were rented out. So I had $10,000 in cash flow coming in on properties that I really hadn't paid much for, right? $90,000, they were all leveraged. So I basically put in maybe 200 grand at the most. And I had $11,000, $12,000 in cash flow immediately. Today, that cash flow is over 20,000. As you can imagine, rents have gone up a great deal. So that gave me a lot of confidence that what I was doing was making sense and, and using data and using analytics made all the sense in the world. So I started to build on that. I started to write uh, develop uh, metrics. Now it's a course that about 10,000 people a year take. So I started to develop real estate metrics that, that basically said, if you go into areas with population growth, job growth, income growth, home price growth, and, and these other metrics, I developed these metrics and how much of each kind of growth did you need over what time? I developed those metrics and I started teaching them at meetup groups that I was holding inside of that technology campus. I'm still a tech guy. I'm still working a day job. You know, there's no investors. It's just me. It's my money. But I started to share all of these things that I was doing with armies in the Philippines and, you know, doing data analytics and, and figuring out metrics and figuring out the best cities and neighborhoods in the U.S. to invest in. I started doing meetup groups. And that was, I think, 2010, 2011. And what was interesting is I thought maybe five or six people are going to show up in an evening to listen to this data geek guy. But I was the novelty. There was nobody else in the Bay Area like me. Like there was this like data guy that basically talks about all these things and how you can make money and he's not trying to sell anything. And so before I knew it, huge numbers of people would show up at that meetup. Sometimes 100 or 200 people would show up to listen to me. And so I kind of became a micro celebrity in that area. And then people started calling for podcasts. I've now done 100. Uh, people started calling to invite me to conferences to teach there. And I'm like, this is cool. Maybe this can be my new career when I sell my company. So when time came to sell the company in July 2013, I had a ready-made career and I went straight into it, started buying really large multifamilies using my metrics. And um, it's been good. So 500 plus investors, the overall portfolio is over 300 million. Last year, we did 187 million in properties, mostly large multifamily, some student housing, some glamping resorts and one uh, storage project, so self-public storage project. So that's kind of the short version there, AJ. Do you manage them yourselves also? So what I do actually is very unique. I've never seen anybody else do it. So just let's, 
let's say you were buying a multifamily property in Atlanta, right? You would get a proper Atlanta property manager and they'd have, you know, four or five people working at the property, right? That's typical. I do the same exact thing, AJ. But then what I do is I bolt a secondary management team on top of that PM. So I have two, man two property management teams, one that's local and then one that's in the Philippines. That secondary management team, its job is not to reduce any cost. None of the people at the property are spending less time. So my, my expense structure looks exactly the same, right? In fact, it cost me $10,000 per plot property to bolt that layer on. So what does that layer do? Well, imagine if you had unlimited amounts of manpower in the Philippines and they were generating massive lead flow. They were posting on Craigslist 10 times a day. They were posting on Facebook Marketplace 20 times a day. They were finding ways to penetrate Zillow and Trulia and rent.com and Rentler and show me the rent and 50 other engines and figuring out how to get 20 listings, not one per property, but 20. And so imagine that they ended up with 40, thousand, well, not 40,000, I'd say more like 25,000 tenant leads a year. None of those would be useful because no property manager in the U.S. can actually process tens of thousands of leads. They don't have the manpower to do it. But imagine if there was also a call center in the Philippines that was open 13 hours a day, seven days a week, staffed with rotating staff that was processing incoming tenant leads in real time. 80% of them within five minutes of the incoming lead coming in and scheduling appointments. Imagine what that would do to your occupancy, right? That is what I do. So I have basically two property management teams. They do a lot of other things. They do delinquency management, reputation management, renewal management, community building. Over time, we've expanded them to do all of those things that really improve retention and profit. But when we started out, our focus was simply this, Let's generate a truckload of leads and let's process them in real time and get more people into the property so that if I'm in a market where the submarket's occupancy is 92%, I'm going to be at 98. Well, you and I both know that most of the profit is in the final 6% yep. because there's no expense related to that, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So that's what I do. And uh, I started with two people in the Philippines and now I have 20. That's awesome. Full -time. They're all full-time. They're all employees. There's no third-party they all work directly for my company. So you work on, and you know, as me and you have discussed in the past, and the things that we're trying to do in self storage with data and building the back end data reserves and aggregate all of this that helps us do things like dynamic pricing and capturing this small piece that most people may think is a small piece of occupancy and revenue, even though that makes the biggest difference. What does that make on the performance? So you're buying these properties, you implement you know, your system. What, what does that look like for the performance of the asset? So in general, and this is averaged across my portfolio, right? So some properties do better, some not as well. I've been able to raise occupancy on a 250 unit. I've been able to raise occupancy by about three and a half percent on average. And I've been able to raise rents by about $30. If you express that in terms of NOI at a cap rate of about six and a half, we're generating over $5 million in additional value for every five-year project. So if it's a project where investors put in 5 million bucks, we are doubling the value just from this add-on. The property obviously has its own benefits yes. and mm -hmm. you know, you're going to rehab it and you're going to bump rents. You're going to do all of those things, yeah. right? But on top of that, from this 3.5% increase in occupancy across five years and the $30 rent bumps, 
we're creating on a $20 million property, we're creating 5 million of additional profit. That is why this is not a cost saving initiative. I've never tried to save a buck. Yeah. You know, this is really important. I think for people to hear and understand one of the things that we have in the self storage industry that I speak on a lot is the, how technology is revolutionizing an asset class that thought that it was untouched by technology. It was so obvious to us in the self-storage industry because it acts more as retail. And we could manipulate on the back end algorithms from aggregators like Google, things like that, to find the best top paying customers, timeframes in which we get them in, and then placing them revenues, dynamic pricing, revenue management, which exploded. It was really obvious to me that but when I talked to you, I was like, you're doing something totally different that I, and you're doing it in a way that I'd never imagined doing it on the multifamily. You actually got me excited about multifamily, which the reason I was never excited about multifamily was because I couldn't find how I could get an edge. Um, I think and- that's, that's the key. I've always been looking for an edge, right? So I like doing this for multifamily because when I sign one multifamily lease extra, over and above what I would have normally signed, that lease is typically worth $11,000 a year, right? And if I can keep that up for five straight years at at six cap, I get about $165,000 of profit when I sell, right? So that's about 11,000 multiplied by about 16, that's 166 grand. That's really exciting. The key is you have to sustain it for five years. You've got to be on it every single day. That's why the call center is open seven days a week, and it opens at about six, uh, about 6.30 Eastern Standard Time because a lot more of my properties are on the East Coast. I live in California. And then it runs until about 7.30 p.m. in the evening. So this is really about focus for five straight years to generate that cash. Now. But- I need to back this up a little because I need you to help walk other people through. When when you talk about this information funnel that you have, you're talking about, I look at it as multiple layers, right? Let's say your call center is the middle layer, right? And then you have the end of the funnel, which would be the completion, let's say the property management, putting somebody in a unit. The call center is that middle wider portion of the funnel. Mm -hmm. Then the back end of the funnel is the data, right? Mm -hmm. Now, explain to me here what you're doing on the back end to acquire the leads that you're bringing down into the middle range of the funnel that your call center then is now converting into renters, which then will go to the property management. They'll actually do the placing. They will get the deposit and you will start sustaining those cash flows. The first part of this funnel, the data. Explain to me where you're going what it is and how you how you find it and how you're giving that information to the call center. Sure. So the unless my thing, analogy of the funnel is completely wrong, then correct. Me. Yeah, no, no, no. It's completely <laughs> right. We okay. we call this Claysol. So you're 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 talking about these six steps that, that we call Claysol. So lead generation is really the key, right? So our, we have a goal of lead generation per property. So every every property in the portfolio, we want to generate about four to five thousand leads a year. That's a lot of leads. You can't generate it by simply posting one Craigslist ad. So I'm gonna give you multiple examples and you'll you'll notice that they have the same theme, right? Our goal is to look at an engine that people use for generating leads and ask ourselves, how do I get 10 times as many, okay? Because I have this enormous amount of staff. So imagine people in the Philippines that spend all day long 
using VPNs or virtual private networks to mask their IP addresses so that Craigslist doesn't flag multiple ads. As you know, with Craigslist, you, you, you put the same ad twice, it's gonna flag it immediately, right? But what if you had different ads with different virtual phone numbers and with different subject lines and you were putting those ads in using VPNs, one VPN logs in from San Francisco, one logs in from Los Angeles, and you're doing that throughout the day using a table, right, that shows you the ad. So you, you're doing this all day long, and now you're posting on Craigslist eight times. And why would you wanna post on Craigslist eight times? What's wrong with one ad? But the answer is, on engines like Craigslist, Zillow, Rentlinks, your ad's only visible for one to two hours, AJ. After that, it's on the fifth page where nobody will ever see it, right? Because in today's ADD culture, people are just yeah. looking at the first page. Yeah. They're not even going no. to page, yeah. right? Doesn't but exist. What if you were posting every 90 minutes, 12 hours a day? What if you were doing that in a way catch you? And what if you were doing it not just on Craigslist, but on 15 engines? Now, are Zillow, you talking... Thumper, you know? So you're talking so about many. posting on, like, frequency of posts across multiple platforms, not on an individual platform. So not yes. just on Craigslist, you're going saying, okay, we have these seven different platforms and we'll just keep posting them, you know, as frequently as possible. Frequency is one thing, okay. uh, refresh is another. So Rentlinks is a platform that allows you to click the renew button. When you click the renew button on a listing on Rentlinks, it goes back to the top, right? So they don't think that anyone could be mad enough to have full-time people clicking the renew button every 90 minutes. Uh, <laughs> as, it, as it happens, my moniker in the industry is the mad scientist of multifamily. So I have full-time people that are clicking the damn renew button eight, nine, 10 times a day. So now they found time. somebody that's mad enough. <laughs> that's right. So sooner or later, they'll close that loophole and open another one. Here's another loophole. So there's three facets to our, our scale, our 10X scale. Number one, frequency. Number two, renewing the ads if the, the, the provider allows it. So, you know, Zillow allows uh, renewals and, and Rentlinks does. Uh, Zumper Pro also allows renewals. So the ones that allow renewals, we allow you to do that. The third one is hacks. So what we do is each engine gives you the ability to list each property or address once, correct? Well, we figured out that most of them, if you add commas, semicolons, hashtags, banks, in the right place, they will allow you to list the same exact property again and will give you lots and lots of leads while pointing out to you that the address may be wrong. They point it out to you. They have this little orange exclamation mark next to your listing, but I still see 500 leads coming in from that every year. So they still allow it. So adding hashtags and commas or adding unit numbers at the end allows me to take one address and have 15 different listings. So now this is hacks and we hack different engines, different ways. Okay. So you're using kind of multiple avenues to get everything from frequency to hacks. I'm sure quality, you're probably SEO, yeah. right? Different tactics like that, that you're using to get your listings to populate on the first page continually yep. and then you are just in this is keeping it in front of the customers mm -hmm. and then when your customers click in what is I, I think a lot of you're 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 generating large amounts of potential tenants now 
out of these large amounts of tenants, they go through now to the call center. So now we, we want to call. What is the qualifying process that you have? Are you looking for a certain person? Do you have yeah. in mind? Okay, explain that. Absolutely. So I'm going to get myself in trouble with fair housing here. So as you can tell, if you have individuals, if you've got, you know, let's say a young man in, the, in his 20s, and then you have a family of four people, every landlord will tell you, I want the family of four people, right? Because the family of four people will stay two and a half years. The individual guy on average will stay maybe 12, 13, 14 months. He's not going to stay longer than that. They, they move a lot. Your long-term value associated right. is much higher. Correct. So fair housing says, well, you've got to give it to the, to the young man if he came in before the others. But what if they came in on the same day and you only had one unit? Fair housing then allows you to make it subjective decision. It gives the power to the property manager. Therefore, my goal is to bring in the sweet spot tenant so often into the property that the property manager can abide by fair housing laws and still pick the people that will stay the longest and have the highest credit rating, have the best land landlord reviews. I, I want to give them a buffet of choices so they can legally pick the right ones. And what is that process? The lead goes, hits the Philippines. The moment it hits there, they always look at, they're always looking at the latest lead. So whoever's off the phone looks at the latest leads, immediately calls the lead back, usually within five minutes, five to 10 minutes, talks to the lead, pre-qualifies them. You know, we, we want to get rid of the bankruptcies and we're going to get rid of the people that, you know, the credit is 300 or I have no, um, you know, down payment. You know, I don't have deposits. Well, obviously, the goal is to get rid of that because that waste, they, they waste so much time, you know, for the property manager. So we, we go through an entire pre-qualification process with them and then we schedule them at the property, right? And then we do something that most properties don't do. Text reminder again saying, thank you for your call yesterday. We're looking forward to seeing you at the property on Friday at 10 a.m. And then on Friday at 8.30 a.m., 90 minutes before, we repeat the text. If you don't send these two texts, our show rate is 30%. If you send the two texts, it's 40%. Let's give some context to your process. I know a lot of people are listening to this going, oh, great. So is this what everyone does? So for those, those people that are not in multifamily right now, they're looking at getting in. Normally, it's just if someone shows up, you give an offering, right? There is no follow-up. There's no sales process to get those tenants already no, I mean, I, I've, I've noticed that somebody, some billion dollar company that has some components of this, but as far as I know, nobody's ever used the Philippines the way that we have. So it is a rather unique process. And we go far beyond this. I mean, I could spend an hour on what they're doing, but if the person doesn't show up at the property, the property manager doesn't have to do anything. He simply has to click a button in Appfolio and off goes the team again, chasing that person to bring him back into the property, right? If the person comes in, looks at the property, shows interest, but for whatever reason says, I am not ready to fill out the form. Guess what happens in the US? Nobody ever calls that person again, right? The onus is on the tenant. In our case, the property manager checks off a box in the software and off goes our team chasing him again and saying, you really like the property. Why didn't you fill out the form? Oh, I was looking at this other property. Okay, I'll call you as soon as you're done with that one. I'll call you in two days, right? Chase, 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 chase. That's how you get tenants. Do you have historical data on the properties that you've acquired? And have you seen through the transition 
a lot of the metrics that I look at, I'm looking at lifetime value. I know that mm-hmm. if I can increase, obviously, revenue, and if I can increase the amount of time that is there, that brings a lifetime value per tenant. That's, that's the whole goal, right? Talk to me more about the end result in you acquiring the property. Are you looking for how distressed assets are you trying to turn around? Or are you like, no, I'm, just, I'm looking for A-class properties, and I'm, and I'm going to get operational improvements, I've thought about doing A-class properties and operational improvements. I've never done that yet. So for the most part, I, I'm looking at C-class properties that are not distressed. They're occupied, but they're under potential. So they may be occupied at 86% or 84% occupancy, enough for me to get a proper Fannie Freddie loan. I don't want to be able to, I don't want to be paying cash for a $30 million property, right? So I want to be able to get a full 83% LTC bridge loan. That's typically what I get, right? And to do that, you have to have about 85% occupancy, more or less. What I don't want to be buying is properties that are at 95 or 96% occupancy. I don't want to be buying, you know, a class A properties and doing operational improvements. I want to combine the bumps that I get from rehabbing units and getting maybe a $150, $175 bump. So I want that, that bump. And then I want my operational efficiencies to fill them up to the max, right? And I want to maximize both of those. And that works well with C plus properties and B minus properties. C minus properties, it doesn't work well. I have one of those. And, and while I'm able to keep that property very full, I'm not able to mess with its delinquency. It's still delinquent because the tenant quality is not good. So I try and stay away from areas where the delinquency levels are high because that's not something that I can fix with my army. How long have you been doing this? Give me a time frame. July 2013 was when my technology company was sold. And so all of this stuff has gotten phased in over the last six, seven years. And it's really accelerated in the last 24 months. How, how many deals have you done in the last year? So last year was seven deals, 187 million. Altogether, I've done 18 projects. So one of okay. them is storage mm-hmm. and one of them is a glamping resort and the rest are multifamily and student housing. Okay. What asset class has your process lent the most value to? Is there one that clearly stands out as this is easier to use? or? So I have applied it so far to storage, multifamily, student housing, and glamping resorts. Glamping resorts are a unique you know, asset class. And I'll say it works really well with glamping resorts, but they're very small asset class. So I'll, I'll leave it alone. So off those three, unquestionably, the one that it's worked the best for is multifamily. With storage, the downside has been the ticket price. You see, with storage, you've got an $80 ticket price. So if the, if the tenant stays on average for a year, you're looking at a $1,000 pop per sale. Whereas with multifamily, it's a $10,000 pop per sale. So I have these efficiencies of scale. I still have to pay people exactly the same per hour if they're doing you know, storage for me. So I looked at it, it works. So I, I think you'll be happy to know that it works. But the question was, what does it work for best? Far and away multifamily. Okay. And for a lot of people listening to this, where are these things really, where the r- rubber really hits the road is what a lot of people haven't seen in the last 10 years. And that is competitive markets. And I you know, we started investing and we started um, buying up properties in the early 2000s, went through the recession, and people are worried about the recession. And I'm in, I actually welcome it. I'm, I'm 
in fact, in most of our markets, we need it because what hurts our industry in most rental-based industries, it's actually not the recessions, it's the oversupplied markets. It's that customers have too many options and vacancy rates um, skyrocket. And we see that in self-storage right now. So why, why I love this conversation and why I think you bring so much value is that you are a competitive advantage for the asset class that people need to start thinking, how am I competing with the eight new pro, uh, uh, projects of multifamily that have just come down the road? And you know we've talked about you know some of the different markets, which we'll get to in, in a minute, but most of the best markets are booming with building. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. are building everywhere, everything, like never seen before. And that's where a lot of people get nervous. They should. That's that's what I believe you should. For me, a recession comes, we just make money, you know, supply limited, and then that gives the existing products less competition, higher demand, fills up, but in cheap money, good good economy, which we've seen so long, we're having a glut of supply brought in. That's where you stand apart, it, particularly I see in the multifamily um, space and also the other asset classes. But when you're dealing in markets, do you see a clear competitive advantage? I mean, is your occupancy, how, what's the spread that you're seeing? As I said, I'm able to do across my portfolio about three and a half percent compared to taking the teams off. And it's actually very easy to calculate. We typically will not immediately enforce the teams when we buy the property. We want a quarter or two to pass so that we have a benchmark, like this property runs here. And then I put the team in and I wait for about three to four months and then I see the boost, I see the difference. And then I use that to calculate my additional net operating income on that property from my boost. And so it's very substantial. And honestly, AJ, I, I, you hit the nail on the head. I'm doing this because I fear what's happening in the multifamily space. 290,000 units of multifamily new construction are being delivered in 2020. And there's no way I can maintain my occupancy the same as 2019 because demand is around 200,000 units, but 290,000 are being delivered. Well, those 90,000 units are going to drag down rents and occupancy both at the same time. And the only way for me to keep it up is to have an army of people. And people might, you know, a, a lot of your listeners may not get the minutia of this. People might say, but Neil, how can you increase rents by, by bringing in more tenants? You know, isn't there a, like a rental value? Well, here's the good news. Whether it's the storage market or it's the multifamily market, we're not selling a car. We're not selling a white 2018 Corolla. There's no actual value, right? If a person comes in and they like the, the, the color that's on the wall of your unit, or they like the fact that it's on the third floor, or they like the fact that their kid's school is on the other side, or their sister-in-law stays in your property, the value of that unit to them is 50 bucks higher or more, sometimes 100 bucks higher, right? So to you know, every single unit and every single property I've had is subjective, right? It's very subjective. So if you have 20 people coming in and looking at a unit instead of five, you can definitely get 50 bucks more. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that this stuff is simple supply and demand. And yeah. how, when you work, you know, in the self-storage market, it's a box. 
And yeah. the variance in revenue between two different facilities is astronomical. I Ridiculous. mean, you can go a mile down the road and one has 40% more gross revenue than the other one. But once you get in oversupplied markets, it becomes very difficult to do anything with that because it's just a glut. And so everyone then starts scrambling. You start looking for edges. But how people get an edge is they just give discounts and drop rates. Well, that is not an edge. You know, yeah. that well, it's an edge, but it's an edge to a knife that you're catching and it's going right. to hurt. And so for us in the real estate space, when you're looking at value creation, most people, when you're coming onto the market currently today, you are buying assets in the sub six and a half cap range. And at the top of the cycle, of rate increases. So we've had double, you know, in some markets, like we've mentioned the Boise double digit multifamily rental rate increases. So you're buying this after years and then you're also buying at a high occupancy. Now at a five cap, what are you going to do to keep that value? How are you going to keep that value when you have an oversupplied market and then a recession? You're the only one that I've ever talked to that seems to have found a way to say, I have a business model to sustain cash flows independent of market cycles, which is That's very That's because creating artificial demand. You see, mm -hmm. I am boosting demand because when I look at the, the, the demand in the marketplace, one thing that I realized a, a long time ago is, okay, there's 6,000 units in the market and there's 5,500 5, units of demand. One way of looking at it is, well, supply is 10% higher than demand. That's bad news. Another way of looking at it is there's 5,500 people in this market that could potentially be renting my 200 unit facility. So I actually have 27 times as many renters as I need. All I need is visibility. So if I could make myself 10x more visible, I create my own demand. Yep. And that's what I'm doing. Yep. No, I, I, I love it so much. That's exactly where we are in the space. And we, we talk a lot about this and it's, you know, your competition's irrelevant if your customers can't find them. And, um, you know, large companies too, why this is so relevant in today's market is in storage specifically, this is the name of the game. You are basically online covering and making your competition disappear so they don't exist to new customers. And two, you're keying in on the highest value customers and you're pushing down the low value tenants to go to the other facilities. So you have these giant REITs that are using data to capitalize. They are the only ones, they artificially increase their own demand while two, they're increasing their demand with the highest valued tenants. And we're seeing a lot of this going on in the rental space. And I believe it will cause more consolidation as we've seen technology do in every single industry, right? And the question is, is how are you utilizing that in your space? And how are people, when they come in, when you're getting into this game, how are you getting a piece of the action? Which brings me to the next thing. How are you doing deals? So are you doing it all by yourself or are you... I mean, you talked about your financing. How are you doing the deals? How are you financing the deals? Do you have partners? So I have operating partners, but not equity partners. So I raise all of the money myself. And how do I raise the money? Well, I'm a very visible person. I, I teach at conferences. I taught last night at the Anderson conference in San Diego. I teach at about two dozen conferences. I have a massive 
marketing team, about eight people, uh, of which six are in the Philippines, and they create outreach. So we are, we're basically doing the same thing on the marketing side that we're doing for our tenants. Um, we are on every channel. We have a huge number of people coming into the database. Uh, there's about 12,000 leads currently. Um, our multifamilyu.com, which is our website, we do 50 webinars there. Uh, people come in to take tax webinars. They come in to take senior housing webinars, um, you know, uh, student housing webinars, multifamily, of course, single family, trends, all kinds of uh, asset protection. They come in and take 50 webinars a year. And so we're, we're generating our own investors, yes. right? So we are but very they're not equity investors. Explain that to me. So They are equity investors. Oh, they are equity. Okay. They are, uh, yeah, me lost it for a second. Okay. So they so are aggregating equity. Yes. about $40 million worth of equity from investors that are giving me a hundred grand at a time. Uh, on the property side, I, I use a course on a website that's very a very famous website called Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y.com. It's the world's largest online course website. On Udemy.com slash real focus, I've taken my systems and my metrics for how to find properties, and I've hosted it there for free. And it is actually the most high-ranked course in terms of reviews on Udemy for real estate. And 5,000 people a year take that course. Right now, if you go to udemy.com slash real focus, you'll notice 4,000 students are enrolled. And I answer their questions from time to time, but it's a, it's a, it's a lot of people, system, right? Mm -hmm. So those people, they use my metric systems and dashboards to find properties and good luck to them because they're buying in better places using my systems. But here's, here's how, it in, how it works for me. The course is given away for free. There's no, they, I don't even have their email address. They, I give it to them. But AJ, 4,000 people are using my technology every year, and you generally is higher than that. Some of them will come across properties that are too big for them. If they come across a $5 million property, they'll raise a million and buy it themselves. Good luck to them. But when they come across a $25 million property, guess who they call? I get emails every day, twice a day, three day, three times a day with my Excel spreadsheet of metrics filled in with somebody saying, I have found a property and this does really well on Neil Bauer's metrics. Would you be interested in partnering with me on this? Imagine getting that from all across the United States in all the states that I prefer. And all I have to do is update the course once a year with cities and neighborhoods. It's so interesting because it's the same thing with what we're doing through cash flow to freedom and self-storage income, which we're doing, we're building an opportunity funnel. Like you, we are practitioners of the, like I make my money through investing. I buy underperforming facilities, we turn them around. This time, just like you have a funnel for your customers, right? You also have to create funnels for opportunities properties. and yeah. properties and everything else. And I love that. And I love talking openly about it because I don't have some $100,000 course I'm trying to funnel people into. I'm actually trying right. to funnel in opportunities for me to purchase um, right. and uh, do deals with. And for anybody that's listening to this, you everybody should be doing this. You should be creating your own funnels and your funnels through customers. Now, you talked though really quick about here markets. And I want to get... And, and I want to get into this, what makes a good market, what markets you're looking at, what markets are becoming oversupplied, where you're thinking about putting money, all of that. That's just the, that is absolutely the talk right now. Everybody's looking for the danger zones. Everybody's wanting to make sure they're being more careful where they put capital, which like they just weren't 
nearly as worried four years ago. Makes sense. And they should be worried, right? A lot of mm -hmm. markets don't make sense anymore. So when I look at markets, I look for two completely different sets of metrics. One is called fundamental strength, and the other one is called momentum, right? It's fundamental versus momentum. Even if you're investing in a stock market, there's people like Warren Buffett that do fundamentals-based investing, and then there's, there's all these rocket scientists that have come up in the last couple of decades, and they all do momentum-based investing. Same concept, but I'm applying it to real estate. What are fundamentals? Population growth, home price growth, income growth, job growth, and reduction in crime. These five are the fundamental metrics that show strength in a market. So I, I, I have turned that into a course, which is that Udemy course, that's fundamentals. Then what is momentum? Momentum is when a market appears to be moving, even though there's no real reason for it to keep moving. And we see that in real estate all the time. Why? Because the buzz there is good. Everybody's telling everybody else prices are going up, so they keep going up until one day they don't, right? So we track momentum markets, and there are a number of very strong momentum markets in the U.S. That, that are there right now, and I'm investing in some of them. But I understand this, that momentum markets are very fickle. They can turn on a dime. So I'm always ready to sell in a momentum market because I don't know when the party ends, but you make more money in momentum markets. So I can tell you a good momentum market at this point, if you have an appetite for risk, is Detroit, Michigan. Detroit has lost a million people worth of population and continues to lose population. As of last year, it lost more population. So you look at that and go, well, this is a terrible market. Yeah, but it has all these empty homes. And right now the economy is good and people are willing to pay up. So the most profitable market in America for real estate is Detroit. Only understand that the moment a recession starts, that market gets slaughtered. It doesn't get hurt, it just gets slaughtered. You lose all of your tenants, people stop paying, it's bad. So. There's these kinds of momentum markets. And I started off with the most dangerous one, which is, which is Detroit, but there's others that are momentum markets where the fundamentals are not strong at all, AJ, but they're, they're doing well and they probably will keep doing well if you we have a, a small recession. If you have a 2008 type, then all bets are off. So what are those markets that fundamentals are not very strong? Philadelphia, Kansas City, Missouri, uh, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Missouri. All of these are markets that where the population growth, job growth, income growth is really nothing interesting, right? And some of them actually lose a little bit of population all the time. Cincinnati is another great example, right? So these are momentum markets. They're rising because all ships are rising. Of them, I consider Cincinnati to be the best. So that, that's, those are five markets that I wanna give you. Then you have markets where the fundamentals are strong, but the problem is they've risen a lot. So let me give you an example of markets where the fundamentals are really strong, but they've risen a lot, so you gotta be careful. The biggest one is Denver. So of all cities in America, prices compared to 2005 have risen the most in Denver. So that's a market to be careful of, but its fundamentals are very strong. All the tech economy and all the other stuff that's happening. So it could keep going for a while, but you have to know that you're really paying in an expensive market and you're paying up. If you don't want Denver, Another market that has strong fundamentals that's gone up a lot is Orlando. So is Nashville. So these are strong markets. There's reasons why people are investing in them, but they're really, really expensive. So what I'm doing now, Phoenix is another good next example. Really strong market, has reasons to be strong. Dallas is another one. So what I'm doing now is I'm pivoting and I'm going to markets that are 20, 30, or 100 miles away from these 
markets with very strong fundamentals that have gotten expensive. For Phoenix, I'm looking at Mesa. Mesa is 30 miles away, very fast growing itself, but definitely cheaper than Phoenix. I'm also looking at Tucson. Tucson's 90 miles away from Phoenix, but there's so many people frustrated by the high price rises in Phoenix that they've started investing in Mesa, in, 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 um, sorry, in Tucson. And so Tucson has decent fundamentals, not awesome like Phoenix, but all the money from Phoenix is moving to Tucson because it's cheaper, right? So I look at metros like that. I don't invest in Denver, but I'm looking in Colorado Springs. I don't invest in Seattle, but I'm looking in Tacoma and Olympia, right? So looking at these secondaries that are very close to these superstar, fundamentally strong primaries. What, I, what I'm trying not to do is uh, like for Orlando, Lakeland is about 30, 40 miles away. That's a great market to look at in, in Florida. It's, it's also 20 miles from Tampa. So it you know, obviously has dual benefits on both sides. I think those are the sort of markets that people need to look at today, especially if the market has something known as suburban. So millennials don't like suburbs. They like urban suburbs. They like to go into a, a suburb that has a downtown core and they like to buy or rent close to that downtown core. So they want a mini downtown core. So if you're going into suburbs where cities are building these cores up and they're small downtowns, right? So maybe like just 10 buildings or 15 and they've got some restaurants and other stuff. That's a really great buy. That's a great place to go to. You see a lot of those suburbs in Nashville. I was down there looking at properties and there's suburbs that, you know, they're, they're not that far out, but you go down and there's this hip downtown, all the yeah, rental places. Mini and downtown, like, yeah, right, mini right? downtowns. Like you're like, blocks. holy cow, it's buzzing. You're there on the weekends. Everybody's walking around and you're kind of going, yeah. this isn't even this isn't even Nashville. And it's, and it's hot. People are enjoying. Exactly. They're going out. And there's breakfast places. There are all sorts of stuff going on. Exactly. That, if, if you want to ride a trend because the millennials just came of age as our big you know, buying generation, mm -hmm. that trend will last for two decades. So yeah. instead of going to suburbs, go to suburbs with urban. These, these are known as suburbs. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. Hey, I, I, I don't want to take all night. I, I can't tell you how appreciative I am for you, though, coming on and just giving so much value and, and really giving people, though, uh, another way to look and develop a you know philosophy on investing, which I think is really really important. We have the you know we have all the basic stuff, but things are changing, and, and your perspective is is absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate it. Where can people go to find you? Where it can my listeners, and we'll put this in the show notes too. Sure. So I use the Irish spelling, so it's not N E I L, it's N E A L. The easiest way to find me is by simply searching for the words Neil Bawa. As it happens, I'm the only N-E-A-L-B-A-W-A -A on the World Wide Web. So just type <laughs> in Neil Space Bawa, hit enter. You'll see about 100 podcasts and dozens of webinars. You'll see my websites. And, and my website is also very easy to remember. It's multifamilyu.com, multifamily university, multifamily followed by the letter u.com. I do about 50 data-driven webinars there on all sorts of things. I mean, all sorts of things. Anything that catches my fancy, I, I, I'll, I'll whip it up into a webinar. And so check that out. There's a real estate trends toolkit there with hundreds of research reports, trends like the one that I just talked about. I mean, Serban is one of two dozen trends that you can ride to success. So I tell people, now's not the time to back off. 
but now is the time to back a trend. Another trend that I would like you guys to think about is buy, build, uh, so build to rent. Build to rent is a very powerful multi-decade trend that's only two years old. So that trend will continue regardless of the next recession. And Recessions what, and what and is go. that? Explain that. Build to trend it, rent is developers have always built to sell. Here, a developer from the very beginning says, I'm actually going to modify my construction plan. So I'm building the kind of home that's exactly right for the long-term renter that wants to live there five years or longer. I'm not going to build one amenity that renters don't want. I'm going to build exactly the size for renting. And I'm going to hold for 10 years, five years, 10 years. You can do this at in a 200 unit, you know, homes. These are all homes. These are single family homes. Or you can do it in five units. But once you realize what the right template is of build to rent, you're actually building fairly cheap homes because you're not trying to be sell the home to everybody. You're simply trying to sell it to that one renter that says, I cannot buy, my credit's not good, I'm making lots of money, I wanna live in a nice community for five years or 10. Imagine no churn, the tenant pays 25% more than he would pay at an apartment. In an incredible market. That's just fantastic. Well, we are gonna have you on again. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. And everybody, go follow Neil, look at his stuff. Um, there's so much that he offers. Thank you, I really do appreciate it. Thanks, AJ. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at Cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much. Thank you.